0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
1: This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hope everybody's having a great day today. We're uh, here live in the studio, actually in the studio and in my office uh, in two different places trying to uh, do the ultimate in social distancing here on MPB Think Radio, Uh, just with the, the change in times of how we're doing things. But we are here for you this morning, as usual, to answer your questions about the health of yourself, or maybe it's someone in your family or some friends. Maybe it is a question about medications. Lots of questions about medications, what they do, side effects, why a doctor prescribed them. Sometimes we're not the best at uh, telling our patients that. And maybe it is a um, symptom that you hadn't quite uh, got a diagnosis for yet, or a new diagnosis that you don't totally understand and want to ask some more questions. This is your chance to do that uh, on the program this morning. You can call us at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or if you can't call in, feel free to email us anytime at remedy at mpbonline.org. Well, like I said, I hope everybody's having a great time. It looks like summer has hit the south. The humidity is up. The temperature is very high. Um, If you were like me and got outside quite a bit on Memorial Day, uh, Monday, You know that it was extremely hot. I lost two pounds despite hydrating through that, uh, working in my backyard with a shovel uh, and still somehow made it. Um, So if you are going to be outside, don't forget. This is probably the time of the year where everybody has the most difficulty with acclimating to the higher temperatures up in the 90s with that increased humidity that we uh, love that is near and dear to us in the south. So be careful out there. Hydrate beforehand during and after. If you're outside, take frequent breaks. If you're going to be out in the heat, make sure that it's, uh, if you can, avoid the midday, uh, anything from about 10 o'clock to about 3 p.m. Try to do your work after those times. But I do want people to enjoy outside. There's a lot more people exercising uh, these days than usual. So uh, that's a good thing. We just want to be careful with all the complications that you can have from dehydration heat exhaustion, and heat stroke. Let's, uh, let's go take an email first while we're waiting on our callers. Uh, I do want to encourage everybody to call uh, early. So we uh, typically we will get a lot of calls in the second half of the hour, which is great, uh, but we don't always have time to spend on each call the way we would like. So uh, we tend to have a little bit more leeway on the first half of the hour. So while I'm reading through this, a couple of emails here, Uh, take the time to go ahead and and call. It's always difficult to be that first caller. I understand, but I'm giving you permission today. This is Dr. Jimmy giving you permission to go ahead and call 1-877-MPB-RING. All right. We've got an email here uh, about a, a person's mother. So my mother was diagnosed with a gallbladder infection in February. After having tubes installed to drain off the infection, she had her gallbladder successfully removed in March. She's in her mid-80s. Is this a fairly typical procedure for someone her age? What does a gallbladder do, and how do you function without one? Excellent questions about a component of our GI tract. So uh, first of all, a little, uh, little lesson on how a gallbladder works and what it does. So the gallbladder is basically a bag. Uh, it is uh, about the size, uh, a little, uh, about double the size of a walnut, Uh, Or or smaller than that. uh, It sort of varies from person to person. But basically, it is attached to a tube that comes from the liver into the intestines. And that tube secretes bile, B-I-L-E. So bile is a substance that helps break down fats in our diet. And it is uh, very useful in doing that. Uh, There are substances in our digestive tract such that when foods hit the stomach, the stomach secretes different hormones to tell the rest of the GI tract downstream what to secrete to break those down appropriately. So if you eat a meal higher in fats, that would stimulate uh, the liver and the gallbladder to secrete bile. Now, it's secreted in the liver, but then when it gets to the gallbladder, it actually gets stored there so that you don't need it all the time. It's only when you're eating to break down particularly those fatty foods. So after the gallbladder receives this signal from the stomach, it contracts. It has a muscular layer so that it can contract and excrete that bile through into the main tube that goes into the intestines to help break it down. Now, for whatever reason, and there's lots of different theories about this, um, gallbladders can uh, start to not work properly. They cannot squeeze that bile out. You can have uh, bile stones, which are that bile, if it sits there, if it's got way too much cholesterol in it, and that mainly is due to our diet and lots of other factors, then you can have, uh, you can have stones, these little hard calcifications of that bile, about those bile salts. And uh, that can stop up the gallbladder itself. And you can have pain, typically the the typical pain that you have with uh, gallstones and gallbladder dysfunction is in your right side, upper side of your abdomen, um, and it can be intermittent in nature, uh, very painful. Sometimes it can feel like it's uh, not only on the right side of your abdomen, upper abdomen, but in your right shoulder as well. We call that referred pain. And typically it's about two hours after eating a high fatty meal. So if you really get a good history, sometimes you can tease that out. It doesn't have to be in everybody. And that's mainly uh, gallbladder dysfunction. Um, now if that goes on a long time, you run the risk of, uh, of having an infection in there. So because it's attached to our GI tract and we have lots of bacteria in our GI tract, anything that doesn't function right can run the risk of getting an infection. That typically is treated with antibiotics. Uh, the emailer mentioned a tube that helps to drain that bile out where, while that infection is getting cleared up. And then finally, taking it out surgically uh, for an infection or if you have a gallbladder that's not functioning correctly. Many different tests that you can do to show that. Uh, ultrasound is probably the oldest and best test to do that. It's a non-invasive test. You can actually see gallstones. You can see uh, a gallbladder that's enlarged. Um, you can check for a couple of other things that are more uh, serious like uh, biliary tract Cancers or liver uh, cancers or even pancreatic cancers with an uh, ultrasound as a screening tool, and then there's some other tests to actually see just how well it functions uh, by giving it some of those hormones uh, that the stomach normally secretes and seeing how it contracts. The surgery is typically it is a it is a uh, low risk surgery no matter what your age is certainly the older you are and the more uh, the more chronic. Uh, health conditions you have, there's an increased risk with that. Uh, one of the the advances is that we no longer for most of these cases, they'll try to do this uh, laparoscopically, which is small holes that they have in the abdomen. They'll put a a scope in there so they will not actually open you up. Uh, much less risk. Uh, there are some instances where you can't do that, uh, but even then, it's a fairly routine surgery. Uh, particularly if the gallbladder is just not working well. Now, if it's infected, it's another problem. Uh, that's probably why they didn't do the surgery right off the bat and they put the tube in this instance. So that's what the gallbladder does. It secretes bile to help us break down fats, but um, it can cause a lot of problems in a lot of people. This is uh, Southern Remy. The number to call is one mpb ring That's 1-877-672-7464. Let's go to, I believe it's Joanne in Ocean Springs.
0: Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Um, this isn't a symptom, but uh, I was given some antibo- antibiotics for Flexin on the 19th, and I carry them in my purse with me, and they've developed a foul odor. Does that mean they got too hot and went bad, or are they still good?
1: Uh, yeah, if it's... It, it it could be that they've gone bad. Now, if, if you're particularly if the purse was out in the sunlight, so even tablets, which last the longest for most of these medications, if they get too hot, they're just going to break down. Uh, so they may be ineffective high temperatures and, uh, and heat, uh, sorry, high temperatures and sunlight are one of the, you know, the two biggest things that can, uh, can degrade those. Now the odor, some medications over time in the bottle, they will, um, they will, they will uh, you know, develop that odor. But uh, particularly if you open it up, some of them are stuck together. Um, I, I would probably take that back to your pharmacist and see if they can sort of negotiate with your doctor. Usually they can just call the doctor and say, hey, they need another, you know, another prescription because these uh, may not be useful. But it's always a good idea if something changes in your medications like that, or if you know that they've been out in the hot sun to go ahead and get a refill.
0: All right. I appreciate it. Should I
1: not carry my medicines in my purse? Uh, It depends on the type of medications. Now, certainly some you need to carry with you. Like, for instance, if you're an asthmatic, a lot of the medications that we use to treat asthma, we would want you to have access to that. Same thing with allergic type reactions. But if you're in a place, uh, you know, when you take that medication like at home, I would just leave it at home. Now, antibiotics, certainly you have to take them multiple times a day. But if if you are going to be out and about with medications, as long as it's in a cool, uh, you know, environment that's uh, not going to get too hot and not exposed to sunlight, it should be okay.
0: All right. Well, they're not stuck together. I mean, they won't hurt me to take them. They just may not work, is what you're saying?
1: Uh, yeah. If it doesn't look like, or you don't think it was in the heat, it's probably okay to take.
0: All right. Thank you very much.
1: You're welcome, and thanks for calling.
0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
1: This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you today, talking about all kinds of different questions that you might have about your health. The number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 672 7464 Uh, If you'd like to send us an email, you can always email us. You don't have to do that uh, when we normally have the program. We do look at those and sort of collate those week to week uh, and try to get back as as quickly as we can. The email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. You can also listen to previous programs if you'll go to the MPB Online website and search uh, for Southern Remedy. All of our Southern Remedy shows are archived uh, for you to go back and listen to. We understand that many of our listeners, or maybe even most of our listeners, at the time we broadcast, they may not be able to catch the entire program. So you can always go back and catch those portions that you missed by going to our website and searching for those individual programs. All right, let's go to John, who is on the road. Good morning, John. Good morning,
2: hey, I got a quick question for you. I'm out in the sand a lot, um, and all of a sudden I notice that, like, one of my big toenails has kind of gotten discolored. Do you know what that could be?
1: Yeah, a couple things. Uh, so our toenails, you know, typically they're they're clear so that you can see through them unless you're painting them. I'm not assuming you're not painting your toenails, John. Uh, I am not. But, uh, <laughs> okay. but a couple of things that can cause them to be discolored. One of the most common things is trauma to the nail bed and the nail bed is that portion that's proximal to the it's not on the end of the toenail but way up where it comes out of the skin and that's the portion that's actually making the nail so it has a matrix that lays down those keratin uh, those keratin material that's hardened and it gets pushed out at about a millimeter to two millimeters per day in most people um, if there is damage to that matrix from anything, it can be something that falls on your toe. This happened to me years ago and I've got a funny looking toenail, uh, since then because the matrix was damaged. If that occurs, you're going to have a discoloration or it's going to have some wavy lines or something in there. Another thing that can happen is if, if you have something that goes on in your body, like a severe infection, uh, if you have thyroid problems, Really, any kind of major trauma, chemotherapy, that, at the time that you have that, is going to cause the cells that lay down that to not function correctly. So, you know, it's very common, say, if, you, if you're getting chemotherapy and somebody who's had that, you can look at their nails, and you'll have sort of almost like rings on a tree. You have sort of a, uh, a timeline of when those things happen because of the changes, and that can change with the colors, too. The other common thing with discolored nails is an infection by a fungus. So fungi, uh, very prevalent in the South just because of the increased humidity. Uh, it's hard to get rid of them. You can find them everywhere. Even if you dehumidify the air in homes, uh, we tend to get them. It in, in people who also have things like diabetes or other chronic illnesses, sometimes they can be much more susceptible to getting fungal infections in their toenails. And that can be... A discoloration that's either, you know, light brown to black uh, that uh, discolors the nail, and oftentimes it'll be disfigured as well. So it won't be that nice, smooth nail that you see. Uh, you can you can go to somebody and they can actually take scrapings of it and culture that out. But most of the time, a physician or somebody can look at it and say, "Yeah, that's a toenail fungus. We need to treat it." Um, so one of the ways to treat that, if uh, if you do have an infection in The toenail is you have to treat it. You know, people were like, well, I use a topical antifungal agent that I got over the counter. It didn't really work. Well, that's not going to work because, again, those cells that make the nail bed, they're in the nail bed that make the nail. They are so far deep in there. You really can't penetrate down to that level without giving something by mouth. So most of the time to get rid of this, it does take weeks to treat it, to get rid of it. You have to do that. So I'm going to place my money. John, probably on the fungus, uh, yeah. just because that's probably the more common thing if you don't have, you know, something that injured it.
2: Yeah. So you think it's more of a oral medication that might deal with
0: that?
1: Yeah. There are things like Lamisil, Spornox, uh, you know, Itraconazole. There's all kinds of different choices that you can have based on the individual person and, you know, trying to limit side effect profiles. Some of those medications you have to monitor uh, typically if you have other problems liver enzymes most of the time they're well tolerated uh even in children though you know there's one medication greasy of fulvin that we give to kids for this uh, but but you have to ch- you have to do it by mouth whether it's a you know a tablet a capsule or a liquid medication you have to do it by mouth if the fungus infects the nail bed or the hair uh, the rest of it uh, you know if it's just on the surface of the skin um, then you don't, you don't have to do that.
2: Okay. Well, listen, thank you very much for your help. I really appreciate that.
1: All right, John, thank you for calling. Fungal infections are, it's always one of those things that patients come in with. They say, you got to look at my toenail, it's something awful going on here. And again, typically if you have diabetes, either type one or type two, it is a very common thing to have. And it can, if it's left untreated, it can be sort of a, an entry point for bacteria uh, in some individuals so that they can have cellulitis or other problems, uh, with infection. So you definitely want to treat it, not just because it looks bad. All right, let's go to, I believe it's, uh, Dino in Greenwood.
3: Yes. Hello, doctor. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Sure. I, I am a truck driver. Um, about eight months ago, I had a DOT physical and, um, uh, the PA was, of course, listening to my heart and, um, he stepped out of the room. He said, just, Hold on a moment, and he he uh, came back with a doctor, and I guess he wanted the doctor to listen to my heart. Um, he the doctor said that I have a stage two or stage three or maybe higher heart murmur, and you know, he, they said it might not be anything, but they said you know you might want to get an appointment with a cardiologist and have a uh, echo cardiogram. So I'm um, in yeah. the process. Of- Yes, I'm in the process of doing that. I just was curious, um, are heart murmurs, are they really serious? Can they be treated?
1: Yeah, so it depends. So, you know, that's a common uh, common thing on physical exam. Uh, you got a pretty good description of it there. There are, there are four valves in the heart, uh, yeah. and those valves normally make some sounds, uh, and we call them, we give different designations to those in doctor talks. A murmur is an extra sound either caused, it's really caused by turbulent blood flow most of the time. So 90% of the time it's, if you think about this as if the blood flowing through the heart is sort of like water flowing through a hose in your yard if you're watering. And if you kink that hose, it makes an extra sound, right? So it's that turbulent flow of the blood going through our heart that causes the murmur. Many not murmurs are benign, they don't cause any problems. They typically occur in much younger individuals. It's very common in pediatric age ranges. As we get older, it's less common that those are benign and that they need to be investigated just to make sure that it's not something that we need to monitor uh, or is more serious that would require some intervention. In addition to the valves, where most of the problem does occur in the valves, either with them being leaky or you have a valve that closes up over time from calcification, or sometimes you're born with one uh, less valve leaflet on some of those valves. That that can all be a setup for having a a condition where you're narrowing that valve. But the leaky valve and the narrow valve, it has to be watched over time. And the reason for that is it you know it can lead to things like heart failure. Uh, it can certainly put you at risk for uh, damage to your heart as well as damage, uh, to the rest of your body, just because the heart, uh, uh, pushes blood through it. So, uh, you know, you're on the right track, the numbers you said, uh, so typically a, a, we, we have a grading system of murmurs from, uh, from one to six. So zero would be no murmur at all. One, really the cardiologists are the only ones that can hear a one out of a six murmur. Two is a, is a soft murmur. It's a little bit less intensity. Three is one that's, that's probably the loudest you can hear, uh, except uh, without feeling it. And you can feel these, just the vibrations on the chest. And that's really the four, five, and six. So uh, a little bit more to, to, uh, to tease those out. But basically, uh, you know, a two to three, it really depends on where they're hearing that and at what point in the heart cycle that they're hearing it. But the echo is going to tell you the most, it's going to be the, the, the best test really to determine where that murmur may be coming from, what is causing it, and is it something that, uh, you know, what degree uh, that it's happening? Is it something that you need to do something uh, else about? Uh, cardiologists yeah. and cardiovascular surgeons have gotten much, much better at replacing valves. It's not the surgery it used to be where it had to be open heart surgery. In fact, They're replacing many valves, particularly the aortic valve, uh, the same way they do cardiac catheterization. So they'll make an incision either in the leg or the arm, and they'll put a catheter up there, and they'll deploy an artificial valve over that dysfunctional valve, and you go home in a couple of days at the most. Uh, And uh, it's much less invasive surgery. They don't have to cut your chest open or anything like that. But the first step is what you mentioned. You need to have a cardiologist look at that at least to get an echo of the murmur so that they can know exactly what's causing it.
3: Yes, they did say that it was possibly the blood flow. And every once in a while I do have like pains in my chest, you know, right by my rib cage. And it was just concerning me. So I, I really do appreciate it because I'm, I'm going to uh, have that done uh, very soon. But uh, thank you so much for your help. Thank you.
1: Oh, you're welcome. And you, you're right on the uh, you're on the right track with that. Yeah, heart murmurs are, you know, we used to, uh, we used to be in, actually, we sort of prided ourselves on this a good bit. When echo first became widespread, uh, and, and an echocardiogram is really just like an ultrasound. So it's an ultrasound that they do of the heart on the chest. They'll put a little bit of jelly on your chest and you'll, um, you know, you'll they'll put the probe on there and they can actually get pictures. You can see blood flow uh, across those valves. But before that physical exam, was extremely important. And uh, that's one of the cool things that we teach in medical school is, and what I used to do with my medical students and residents is to say, hey, let's listen to the patient before we get the echo and let's bet on what it's going to be. You can sort of, uh, you know, that's a good way to hone those skills of listening to things and then correlating it with what's going to be on echo. But echo is the most, uh, one of the most useful tests. And in doing that. There are some situations where you might have to have some follow-up tests, but that's the first step. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy.
0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
1: This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, taking your calls. A lot of good questions, and I love it when the shows, when you have lots of things are all different, it sort of gives a good variety there. Um, so lots of good things that people have called in with so far, plenty of time for you to call in with a question you might have about the health of yourself or somebody else. You can reach us at one eight seven seven let us go to Gwen from Holly Springs. Good morning, Gwen. Good
2: morning. Uh, I've been on this diet of Dr. Stephen Gundry that I got on MPB. And- uh-huh. He's high on, uh, he wants you to have a lot of uh, olive oil and avocado oil. And I had my um, gallbladder out about 20 years ago. Is that going to be a problem?
1: Probably not. It depends on how much you're eating. You can have some, uh, you know, some symptoms. In fact, they'll probably, if you have your gallbladder out these days, they'll give you a diet uh, to try to uh, try to adhere to, particularly after you um you know, after it's out for the first year or so uh, as your GI tract sort of gets used to that, you're still going to secrete bile. It's just not going to have a storage capacity to deal with meals that have a lot more of it. If you're eating a lot of, you know, there's, there's olive oil and avocados are a little bit different type of, of fats in those. So they're plant-based fats. Right. So they're not like an animal-based fat. The body really breaks that down uh, pretty similarly. Um, there's not much, much way that the GI tract digests that sets that up to be absorbed by the body. So it really depends on the volume that you're eating at any one time. If you spread it out throughout the day, I bet you're not going to have any problems with that. You're going to know if you have cramping or right upper quadrant, uh, you know, the right upper side of your abdomen, if you have pain there that may be caused by this, by having too much of it at any one time. Um, anything that's going to disrupt the normal function of the GI tract can do this. A lot of people who have gastric surgeries, uh, for tumors, or if they have gastric, gastric banding, um, uh, uh, due to obesity, a lot of them are going to have, you know, similar symptoms, but the volume of it is going to be the biggest thing. There's certainly a lot of, uh, advantageous, uh, uh things that you can do by, by changing your diet to, A diet like you mentioned, Uh, you know, I'm a huge proponent of the DASH diet, which is similar. Uh, Lots of fruits and vegetables. The fat content there comes from plants, so it's nuts and oils. Uh, Certainly avocados, that would be another one. Coconut oil is another one that people, uh, you know, sort of go to. Anything that has a lot more fats in it like that, it's going to have the advantage of filling you up a little bit more. You're going to feel like you're a little bit, you know, like your your satiety is going to be higher. But you do have to worry about, you know, fats. Some fats are good, but, you know, too much of a good thing is a bad thing, too. So if you eat a lot of that, it could start to affect your cholesterol.
0: Okay. But uh, just
2: watch out for a pain in my side there
1: yeah if you're not having any pain uh you're not gonna do any damage without you knowing it. Okay. Let me put it that way if you're gonna if you're doing you know if you're eating too much of it, it's gonna let you know
0: okay thanks so much
1: all right Gwen great time. I've heard so many different stories from people about uh this is a good time for change and um you know if if I think we need to start looking for the the what I'm calling pivot points. In, uh, during this time of COVID-19 that you really need to think about despite all the, the negative things, the consequences of, of dealing with this. Um, let's look for some ways that we can improve things and certainly improving our health uh, personally uh, through changes in our diet and exercise are one thing that we can do. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad to hear a lot of people are doing that. I have an email uh, today, let's see, this is, um, let me get back to, I'm sorry, I changed my in-basket here. Uh, So this email was from a listener that said, uh, past outbreaks have been shown to have a second wave of infections, talking about COVID-19. If we have a second wave, what kind of timeline would we be looking at uh, until the second wave? So what the, uh, what the caller is uh, or the emailer is, is uh, referring to here is um, viruses uh, typically in a pandemic or epidemic situation. And if in particular coronaviruses, influenza viruses, sometimes you'll see this pattern where, where they'll have a first wave and then that'll subside and then you'll have a second wave. And there are many reasons for that. One of the reasons uh, is that these viruses are very easily transmitted, uh, but they don't have a lot of good innate immunity to them. Uh, that's one of the reasons why people can develop, uh, sometimes they can have the flu multiple times within a flu season. Uh, what we know about coronaviruses is that sometimes they can do that. Sometimes you'll see seasonally you might have a coronavirus like we've had in the past that, um, that has... Um, um, that may affect you, um, for like one episode. And then a couple of months later, you might have a second episode. So, uh, now it's the much harder aspect of this question is when is that going to be? We don't know. It does depend on how many people were infected, but it also, uh, just because you're infected doesn't mean that you can't get it again. Um, that's why there's a lot of work into developing a vaccine, which might, uh, even uh, provide enhanced immunity uh, beyond that with what we might normally have. We know that you know, from season to season, coronaviruses are a lot similar to influenza. So if you get it one season, you could very well get it the next season. The other thing is these viruses tend to change with time. And as they move from uh, you know, thousands, millions of people uh, and in animal reservoirs as well, uh, same way that influenza does. Sometimes when they, after they pass through a couple of times, they'll become less infected. So that's a possibility. As far as timing, there's no real way to predict that. We do know that traditionally in the, in the years past, coronaviruses typically, uh, affect people in the fall and winter months. Uh, so you're talking about the same season as say flu. So anytime between, uh, October, uh, through, um, uh, through, um, uh, March or even April or May. Uh, those are the typical times, but this is a little different in that we've tried to slow this down and because it spreads so easily, uh, through from person to person, you might, uh, you might see that sort of delayed for a while. So just a couple of things to keep in mind with that, uh, that timeline, not really able to give that timeline, but it's certainly a possibility. Let's go to, uh, Jacqueline and Utica. Good morning are you there
0: good morning i am thank
1: you for this is dr jimmy uh thank you for calling
0: thank you uh i have a question for you i want to give you a little scenario regarding my husband he's 72 years old he has had unexplained nausea and dizziness for almost a year uh he sometimes has blood pressure spikes uh whenever he has these episodes that uh seem to be reflux but it goes way beyond that. Um, what I'd like to know is well, first of all, he's had uh, several tests run. Other than these issues, uh, he's told he's a healthy man. He doesn't vomit, he doesn't have vertigo, had his gallbladder checked, emptying, and study, and you name it. But nobody knows why he has this nausea. Um, he takes Zofran, he's taken Fenogran. Is there anything that you can recommend that could give him some relief? He's having to live with this and the nausea becomes quite debilitating at times.
1: Jacqueline, you you mentioned a lot of tests that normally you would get for something like this. Have they have, uh, has he had a gastric emptying study that you
0: know of? He has.
1: Okay. And that was normal? It was normal. Okay. So, so the, the, the hard part in this is there's a lot of things that can affect uh, a person to develop symptoms of nausea and vomiting. Some of them deal with the gastro, uh, gastrointestinal tract itself. Uh, some of them are due to the nerves that go to the gastrointestinal tract. Some of them can even be, you know, in the brain itself. One year is a long time to deal with this. You're right. That sounds like it's incredibly frustrating uh, and sounds like he's, he's seen a lot of different people. Sometimes you have to see gastroenterologist, neurologist, maybe even an ear, nose, and throat physician, an otolaryngologist, before you get to the bottom of something like this. The blood pressure fluctuations are interesting from the standpoint of, uh, it, it almost makes me think that this may be more of a uh, neurologic um, uh, problem, uh, particularly if if it's at the same time. It'd be interesting to see if it's you know, if it's after he's had a lot of this nausea, which certainly anything that can make you have pain or discomfort, your blood pressure is going to go up. So that's not too surprising. Um, the other thing is, other neurologic conditions can sometimes uh, have these associated symptoms with them. So, for instance, things like Parkinson's disease uh, and other neurologic conditions can sometimes present with gastrointestinal symptoms. Uh, and even things like migraine headaches, it's rare, but it's uh, you know at least rare in, in this age range, but you can have abdominal symptoms from that. I don't think it's you know if it's been going on a year, it's unlikely that it could be uh, you know, a tumor. there are some uh, there are some gastrointestinal tumors that secrete some things that intermittently that can cause this. so, and can cause your blood pressure to go up. Usually they're associated with diarrhea, Um, but there's a long list of things. What you're gonna need is somebody to just sort of wade through this with you. And it sounds like you may have already had that at least a little bit. Um, The other thing may be to request uh, a specialist that just deals in these disorders and and they might can sort that out. so beyond that that, that, that may I may not be able to solve all that on the air today, but um, that that sounds like it's it's probably the, the route that you need to take is to continue to ask those physicians or to look for things.
0: Yes, um, and I appreciate all this information that you've given. Uh, but in the meantime, is there anything that he can take that can give him some comfort? Because like I said, it's been going on a year and he's um, you know, he's constantly seeking out more and more information and, and all the doctors that he's been referred to, he's seen. Um, is there anything other than Zofran and Penner that's good for uh nausea that would help to
3: make him feel more comfortable?
1: Yeah, there's a there's a couple of things that uh that you now they tend to like to use two the, those two first, you know, the Zofran and the Fenorgan. Uh, there are a couple of other, um, there are a couple of other things that you can use, uh, intermittently. I, you know, sometimes going back to sort of good old, uh, you know, old fashioned remedies may help too. Uh, ginger has been used for nausea, mainly in pregnant women, uh, -hmm. with nausea, a ginger ale. A lot of people find that to be sort of relaxing. It sounds like it may be, you may be beyond that, but at this point I would try anything on top of that to sort of see if that helps. Uh, it has been studied in multiple studies, uh, ginger extract itself to, to cut back on the nausea, particularly if it's pregnancy related, but it may work in your case too. Um, there are a couple of other medications that have been used, um, but they're, they have a lot more side effects. So at 72, I'd be pretty careful about anything else.
0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
1: This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls about your health care questions. Please call us at one mpb ring That's one 877 672 74 Four six four. got a little bit of time left in the program we're going to go to charles from jackson first good morning charles
2: morning sir how are you doing today good listen uh I, i'm pretty healthy i really don't have anything to worry about financially or anything but i have i take immunosuppression drugs and i can't get around anybody now i've been getting these crazy dreams like everybody else and i just l- lack of uh, uh, any motivation, like when I, I sleep later than you do, and and when I get up, I don't want to do anything. And finally, air now so like I, I get normal again. Uh, is there anything I can do to, you know, to
1: help
0: myself out?
1: Yeah, you you hit the nail on the head. I've got a lot of patients that in your in, in similar situations. So if you're having to isolate yourself even more so than you know than people who don't have a lot of problems. Uh, there's a lot of problems that come with that. The social isolation uh, is extremely important for us to form bonds with other people. There's been multiple studies showing that friendships and rich uh, family interactions can have profound effects, positive effects on uh, the quality of your life and how long you live as well. And unfortunately, I think that's being impacted right now with uh, some of our social distancing. So our, our challenge is, is how do we do both? How do we social distance and maintain those relationships? Another thing to keep in mind is uh, is is the routine that we have so I, I, here's what I would do. I would set up a routine and, and you know a lot of people are doing this if you' uh, if you're required to work at home uh, early on, you know a lot of people were like, in fact we had funny videos right of people working at home and suddenly they forget that they don't have any pants on. And they get up and then you see their business and you don't need to see that. Uh, but um, that can happen. But it's much better if you go ahead and get dressed like you normally would um, and uh, have some routine. The body's really good at maintaining itself with routine. Um, I would probably, uh, if, if you can do it, I would probably encourage you to uh, exercise outside as much as possible, distance from other people. Uh, regularly, if you can, uh, try to maintain a healthy, um, routine about your eating habits and then the social things that you have, take some time to connect with other people. Even it's, if it's through FaceTime or through, uh, the phone, uh, I do think as limited as some of our, um, uh, you know, video is it's good to see faces. I always enjoy doing that with uh, my zoom meetings or WebEx meetings, whatever modality, um, but those are some of the things I create a routine for myself if I were you, because what you're describing is the body's just sort of, uh, falling back into a pattern of not really doing anything. And a lot of people, it's, it's probably a good idea to go ahead and set some goals for yourself with things that you can do at home, uh, while you're waiting there and socially distancing and keeps you active, keeps your mind active as well. So uh, that's extremely important. That's what I'm telling my patients to do. Those are some of the things that can keep you sane, uh, and productive and healthy during this time. So I would, I would recommend that Charles.
2: I appreciate it, man. And, uh, I, I I've got old car I work on and, you know, and do the yard and everything, but you know, it, it just, it, I, you know, I don't have to work anymore. I, all I have to do during the day is get up and, uh, Take my medicine and and, and feed the dog thats that's my two main things after that, you know, I really don't have anything to do but I get you I understand what you're saying, and i'm gonna just I'm just gonna have to kick myself in the butt and and, and start doing some more because I realize I'm going to be out here until they find a vaccine, and probably after that so uh I'm just in it for the long haul, but I appreciate your words and you stay safe and have a good
1: day. Oh, you too, thank you, Charles for calling. Another thing that's useful is to uh, is to put all that on paper and set you a schedule up. So if you can put that up on the wall or somewhere that you can say, "Okay, what am I doing today? Be your own boss if you're in that situation, uh, but give yourself something to do throughout the day and everything, something a little bit different. So uh, and, you know, if you can, if you can socially distance and do something for somebody else to help them, that is incredibly powerful for your own mental well-being and it can help somebody else out. So I'd encourage everybody to do that, too. Particularly in Mississippi, we need to live up to our reputation of being some of the most caring and giving people in the world. So I think we are just challenged with different ways to do that. Uh, It's sort of hard to cook and give uh, food to somebody else during these times, but we can do it in other ways. So keep up the good work on doing that. Uh, We've got a little bit of time left. I'm going to touch on a couple of emails here, maybe just one or two. Uh, first email is I have used over-the-counter steroid sprays for nasal polyps in addition to nasal saline washes and oral alert allergy medications. Nothing really works for me uh, except for just a little while. What else besides surgery can I do for nasal polyps? Nasal polyps are an overgrowth of the nasal mucosa, so that's the thin lining on the surface of the nose and the inside of the nose. And a polyp is sort of like a little outgrowth Uh, that is usually uh, due to some irritation uh, in that tissue. So uh, to deal with that, there's a lot of different things you can do. The uh, nasal steroids are one of the most common things used for that. Now, if the polyps are smaller, you can be pretty successful in shrinking those over time. It does take time, and it depends on how big they are, though. The nasal saline wash is really that's to deal with any kind of allergies that you have to sort of wash those off the nasal lining, uh, in the passages, and then also the, um, uh, uh, allergy medications, but the nasal steroids are probably the most important thing. Now, beyond that surgery probably is the best thing for that. And the reason again is if it's really, really big, you're not going to shrink that with just that, uh, nasal saline. I mean, excuse me, that, uh, nasal steroid, uh, no matter how long, uh, that you treat it. So I would go to a good ear, nose and throat doctor to see what they think. Uh, fairly benign surgery, outpatient surgery that you can have. They can take those out. They can come back over time if you have a lot more irritation, but uh, in the meantime, that may be the best thing to deal with them. And the main complication is they can sort of stop up those passages, the normal flow of uh, material that comes out of the sinuses, and that can set you up for uh, for chronic sinusitis. So that's my advice to you on nasal polyps, uh, certainly some, something that's very common